Please be seated. Well, welcome again to McLean Presbyterian. If you're new in the last couple of weeks, I should introduce myself. My name is James, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm just back from two weeks in Bonnie, Scotland. It was a great time there. It's the first time our whole crew had been back in about five years, and we were able to do just some really meaningful things, spend time with my own grandparents, my kids' great-grandparents, spend time with my larger family in Edinburgh, and then Rosie's family in Fife. We're also able to do just some fun things like eat haggis and uh, drink iron brew and uh, a Reverend James, as you may have seen in the photos. Um, so just a really good time with family, and uh, really glad to be back, though. Really, it's always good, good to get back home, and good to be back in the pulpit with you this morning. And I invite you to turn to Isaiah at chapter 53. You'll find this on page 613 of your pew Bible. This morning we begin a series called Discovering Grace, where we're going to look really at the story, the significance, and our response to the cross of Christ. And we want to begin this morning by just retelling the story of the cross. Interestingly, one of the best passages to do this comes in Isaiah 53. Why is that so interesting? Because Isaiah was written some 700 years before the cross would actually take place. How is this possible? Not just because God is able to somehow see the future, but because the God who rules and reigns all things 700 years before wrote these words and then directed history so that they would indeed come to pass at Calvary. So we're going to read from Isaiah, actually starting in in chapter 52 at verse 13 through to the end of chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human race and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Father, the words of our lips are indeed the prayer of our heart, that you would come and speak, that by the power of your Spirit you would enable us to be reminded or even hear from the very first time the great truths of the gospel that are given to us at the cross. Uh, Father, we ask that you would uh, just uh, stir us up so that we would not uh, be overly familiar with these uh, texts and with these truths, but would be moved by them, not into mere emotionalism, but into worship. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' perfect and matchless name. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder if you had to come up with a symbol for your faith, what would that symbol be? The first Christians had to deal with this question, and they were discussing it one day, and several of them came up with very good ideas. One of them said, perhaps our symbol should be a manger symbolizing the fact that Christ came to be with us. His incarnation means that he is Emmanuel, God with us. Another said, well, perhaps the symbol should be a scroll. Remember all that Jesus taught us while he was here. We want to remember these things. Let's let's symbolize our faith in that way. A third said, well, no, how about a throne? Let's have that symbolize the fact that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. He is ruling and reigning above all things. Being good Presbyterians, faced with a decision, they formed a committee. Um, then they formed three subcommittees, and then nothing happened for like seven months. Right? But then eventually they came to agreement, and the motion was passed, and all in favor said, aye. And from that day until now, the cross has been the symbol of our faith. The cross has been the symbol of Christianity. And this fall, we're going to discover grace by looking at the story, looking at the significance, looking at our response to this cross. And we're going to go in in slow motion. We're really going to take our time. Often, you know, we teach through large sections of Scripture and move fairly quickly. Not this fall. This fall, we're going to slow it right down. Go to the cross. Linger there. Let the details of it percolate in our hearts and in our souls. Consider its implications for us. Consider its relevance for our lives. And this morning I want to get this series rolling by reminding ourselves of the basic facts of the story. And as I retell this story, I want you to engage in the story with me. Uh, Try and notice new emphases of it, nuances that you hadn't perhaps thought of before. Don't let familiarity be your enemy this morning. I suppose we should really start the story of the cross by reminding ourselves that Jesus lived his entire life as, uh, verse 3, the man of sorrows. Jesus' entire life was, in a sense, the prelude to his crucifixion. His suffering began when he exchanged the glories of heaven for the arms of a teenage mother. 
and the rough straw of a cattle trough. This inauspicious start was then aggravated soon after as his family had to flee to Egypt. You remember, they are immediately fugitives at running for their lives. At returning home, they return home to where? Some great noble city? No, to Nazareth, a town that is known solely because it is unimpressive. There we read that, um, well, there we last read of, of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, when Jesus is only about the age of 12. His complete absence from the narrative from that point on leads us to believe that Jesus lost his father at an early age. Then after this hard upbringing comes the start of his public ministry. And it's at this point that the pressure and the pain reaches unparalleled levels. Begins, remember how his public ministry begins? With a temptation by uh, Satan in the wilderness. Reminding us that every hour, every minute, every second of his life, Jesus is dogged and harassed by the evil one. But then he faces more mundane pressures too. Jesus was a man who is poorer than we can probably wrap our minds around, only owning the clothes that he stood in. He's a man who is homeless without even a pillow for his head. He's a man that's exhausted as he is day by day, moment by moment, pursued by a crowd who is in such great need of love and help. He's a man who's stalked by these legalistic opponents who always come with these entrapping conundrums. He's a man who is misunderstood, misunderstood even by his own family who at one time are worried for his sanity. And again and again and again and again we find that he's a man who is rejected. If there's a theme of Jesus' life, then it's rejection. He's rejected by his hometown. He's rejected by the religious elite. He's rejected by public opinion. He's rejected even by his best friends. The stress and strain just of his life, took such a toll on him that, you remember in John chapter 8, the people get confused and think that he's almost 50 when he's in fact only 30. He wears the stress on his face and it mars him, as we're told in our text. But these sufferings reach their climax that Friday morning. Around daybreak, we know the group of religious leaders passed a resolution that Jesus is to be put to death. Now, these religious leaders know that they don't have the authority themselves to enact this sentence. And so they have Jesus bound and they take him off to Pilate, the Roman governor who has the authority to enforce their wishes. Pilate was described by one of his contemporaries as inflexible, merciless, and obstinate. So the leaders have hope and expectation that this kind of man will grant their request. They want to put Jesus to death. Why? Because he claims to be God. But they know that this religious charge will hold little weight with this Roman governor and certainly little weight in Roman law. So they come up with a more decidedly political charge. He claims to be a king. Pilate takes this charge seriously because he knows that it has implications for his own position. And so he goes to Jesus and he says to him, are you the king of the Jews? How does Jesus respond? Yes. Why does he respond that way? Because he is the king of Jews and king of kings. Sensing their opportunity, the religious leaders start to throw in more spurious accusations as well. This man is a revolutionary. This man is a seditionist. Jesus makes no response. Why? Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, 
Yet he did not open his mouth. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Turning to the large crowd, Pilate asks, what is it that we should do with him? Isn't that a strange question for a judge to ask? A judge who should be enforcing law is instead allowing justice to be dispensed by the will of the mob. The crowd responds as one, crucify him. Pilate obviously senses that there's some kind of injustice to this because he says to the crowd, why, what offense has he committed? The crowd's response just exemplifies the irrational as they can only repeat their first answer loudly. Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate is afraid of the crowd. He's afraid that a revolt will cost him his position, his prestige, his power. And so he capitulates. Though Jesus is innocent, Isaiah 53 verse 6, upon him is laid the iniquity of us all. So Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified, but not before having Jesus flogged, which was, again, the customary introduction to a crucifixion. The Romans used a whip that was made of a short wooden handle attached to which were these long strands of leather. Into the ends of the leather were embedded bits of metal and bits of brass and bits of bone. The stripes were then administered across the victim's back. Uh, we know that the Romans limited the number, uh, the Jews, sorry, limited the number of stripes that were to be administered to 40, 39 in case they miscounted. But Roman law recognized no such limitation. Deep lacerations would sever veins and arteries, sometimes entrails and organs would be exposed. These floggings were so brutal that Roman citizens were exempt from them. And those not fortunate enough to be from that land often didn't survive even the flogging. The punishment was horrific and Jesus bore it. Why? Isaiah 53, verse 5. With his stripes, we are healed. After the flogging, we know that the soldiers took Jesus for some sport, just to amuse themselves. They robe him in this old faded purple robe to mock his claimed, indeed his rightful royalty. They crown him with this crown of thorns to continue this royal jest, uh, weaving together this crown from Uh, briars and twigs. The thorns that entered the world at the advent of sin are now pressed into Jesus's forehead. They fall on their knees and mockingly adore him, striking him as they mock him. Instead of a kiss, they spit on him. When their fun's over, they strip him again, put his own clothes back on him, and lead him out to be crucified. Why? Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was led out like a lamb to the slaughter. Men condemned to die were normally forced to carry their own cross, and Jesus was forced to carry his for a while until he was unable to any longer. And is it a surprise that he was unable to? Consider all that he's been through over the previous 15 hours, beginning with the tense atmosphere of the Last Supper, to his betrayal by Judas, to the agony of Gethsemane, to uh, the trial and the mocking and the flogging and the beating, to the uh, desertion of Peter and all his friends. And so the soldiers force a passerby, a man named Simon, to carry the cross, and this grim procession makes its way out of the city. Why did they go out of the city? Because, as Hebrews tells us, the sin offerings were set outside the camp, so Jesus 
also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And there, once outside the city, we eventually get to the crucifixion. One of the interesting things about the gospel texts themselves is that they actually tell us very little about the process of crucifixion. Uh, Perhaps the original readers were very familiar with this process. Perhaps uh, the gospel writers just had no desire to linger on these morbid details. What we do know is, though, that crucifixion was a deliberately degrading and obscene form of punishment. They'd have laid Jesus' body back down upon, upon a wooden cross. They'd have nailed heavy wrought iron nails through his wrists and through his heel bones. They'd have hoisted him up between two criminals. Why? Because as we read in Isaiah 53, verse 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Crucifixion was intended to be slow and intended to be painful. Our word excruciating actually literally means out of crucifixion. Jesus hung there for three hours and then darkness fell upon Calvary. Three hours more with the land still covered in darkness, Jesus spoke his last words. He cried out and breathed his last. That's the story of the crucifixion. It's kind of a grim story. It's kind of a relentless story. To to tell it even becomes hard. What are we to make of it all? Of course, the cross focuses the heart and the cross focuses the mind. But the distinction between the event of the cross and its meaning has to be appreciated. The distinction between the event and It's meaning two observers can contemplate the cross. One is disinterested because he sees nothing more than a historical event. The other, however, grasps its meaning and sees the death of the Savior of the world. And so one can walk away from the cross while the other finds that they are strangely drawn to it. What is it that you find yourself doing in your heart and your soul this morning? Walking away from it or being strangely drawn to it. In many ways, the difference between these two will depend upon your own awareness of your need of it. Whether you're able to walk away or whether you are drawn will depend in many ways upon whether you recognize your need of this cross. Do you feel your need of it? When we talk about Christ taking the punishment for sin, is this a thing that is an urgent reality in your heart and in your soul? Or does it seem something that is far off and distant? I came across a story this week that really is just a great example of how we can be unmasked by our mistakes. It comes from a woman called, woman called Benny Bernstein, who in 1985 went uh, for a walk on the beach with her husband and then decided that she would jog ahead of him. It was a beautiful sunny day somewhere in the 70s and she started off and ran a mile or so where she came across a stranger. They waved and said hello. She ran another couple of miles, turned around to make her way back, at which point the stranger made a beeline for her. She tried to run away from him, even trying to circumnavigate through the shallow part of the sea. He caught up with her and viciously assaulted her. She woke up later in hospital and after a time of uh, a season of healing was brought in by the police and shown a lineup of suspects. 
There were nine in all, and she started to make her way down the line until she arrived at number three. And the moment she saw him, she stopped and felt a kind of panic in her heart and in her soul. The hairs on the back of her neck stood up, and she shared that this was the man who had attacked her so brutally. The case proceeded, and this man was eventually sentenced to 32 years in prison. Such was the horror of the abuse she had suffered. Some 18 years later, however, she received a phone call. A phone call to let her know that DNA evidence had emerged, and the man that she had pointed to was in fact not her attacker. She describes the horror of realizing that mistake. The horror of realizing the havoc she had wreaked upon this man's life. And she said that that day, the day she realized her mistake, was worse even than the day of her attack. Why do I tell you that story? I'm not even sure that that mistake, that her mistake was a sin. The point being, she had a moment where she was completely unmasked by her failure. And that should be an experience that in one way or another, perhaps in a less dramatic way, is common to all Christians. We have that moment where we realize, oh, these mistakes of mine are serious. These mistakes of mine are severe. This cross is not just a theory, not just a concept, not just a reality, but something that I personally need. Because the story of the cross is grotesque, but for those who see their need of it, Jesus is nowhere more beautiful. He says in John 12, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And Jesus is all attraction. And on the cross, he is most attractive of all. All his drawing power is concentrated there. We might think that Jesus is attractive as he teaches the lost. We might think that Jesus is attractive as he heals the crowds. We might think that Jesus is attractive as he is transfigured. We might think that Jesus is attractive as he is enthroned above all principalities and powers. We might think that Jesus is attractive as he is named above all names that can be named. And yes, we say amen. He is attractive there. But until we have understood the significance of the cross, we will never understand his full beauty. Until we see him there as crucified Savior, we'll never understand his drawing power. It's the cross that draws us from the fleeting power pleasures of this world. It's the cross that draws us from the foolish trappings of religion. It's the cross that draws us to the essence of the gospel. In the world's eyes, of course, there's no splendor there. There's no honor there. There's no glory there. Nothing attractive at all. But with those with the eyes to see, he is never more beautiful than at the cross. Why? Because, why are we so attracted at the cross? Because there we see how attracted he was to us. Prepared not just to teach, not just to heal, not just to rule, not just to reign, but prepared even to die that we might be in relationship with him. So as we close this morning, we know that our symbol is not a manger. Why is our symbol not a manger? Because if Jesus was only born, then we have company as we die for our sins. And our symbol is not a scroll. Why? Because if Jesus is just a teacher, then we're just a little bit more educated as we die for our sins. 
And our symbol is not a throne. Why? Because if Jesus is uh, enthroned in heaven and only that, then we are just in awe as we die for our sins. Our symbol is a cross because in seeing Jesus die for our sins, we are able to live. See the quote on the front of your bulletin. However important the teaching of Jesus, it was not there that its primary significance lay. It lay in his death. Muslims make glory in the teaching of their prophet. Christians glory in the death of theirs. The cross alarms us as we see the nails that are rightfully ours. But the cross soothes us as we hear the whisper of grace that is found there. It's the cross that is our religion. And so, over the next few weeks, we're going to fixate on it. We're going to fixate on it. And we're going to take our time. We'll devote a sermon to the charge that is written on his cross. Another sermon to the thieves that hang there. A sermon to the mocking and derision he receives while hanging there. Another one to the words that he speaks. Another one to those strange events that accompany his death as he's pierced in the side and there's an earthquake and the curtain in the temple is torn in two. We'll devote sermons so that we can understand in a deep, full and robust way the full significance of the cross for us as he fulfills those covenant curses on our behalf, as he serves as our substitute, as he takes the wrath of God, as he gives us reconciliation with God and victory. And then we'll devote sermons to considering our response to this cross. As we follow this man who took up his cross for us, we'll consider how it is we take up our cross in response. This fall, we want to discover grace. And so we're going to the cross because that's, that's the only place you find it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and how it speaks to us of grace. We recognize that we could never have made it up. And not just because we couldn't have predicted events some 700 years beforehand, but because we could never have dreamt up the content of these events either that your love would be so great, so grand, that you would be prepared to rescue your children by sending your son to die there on our behalf. We give you praise and thanks and ask that in these coming weeks, Lord, we would do more than just go through the routine, more than go through the motions, but would find that we really do discover nuances, aspects, tastes of grace that are fresh from your hand to ours. We pray it all. In Jesus' matchless name, amen.